From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I want to suggest to everybody, we can learn from mountain bikers about how to live, whether or not we ever step foot on a bike or step foot off of the pavement. We should learn just to send it in life because awareness and humility are going to be required in order not to F this stuff up all the time. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show philosopher and my longtime friend, J. Aaron Simmons. He's a philosopher, fisherman, mountain biker, husband, and father, an award-winning teacher, and an internationally recognized scholar. He's the author and editor of numerous books and host of the YouTube channel Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. Aaron Simmons is also the former president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society. You can find out more at his website, jaronsimmons.com. Today we're talking about his recent book, Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a Way of Life. Professor J. Aaron Simmons, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Oh, David Dalt, it is an absolute thrill, a joy to be with you as always. And my only regret is that we're not in the same room together recording this. So I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. So you are visiting Furman University, where you are a professor, and your son Atticus is with you, and your grandmother is with you. And there's a point as you're walking through the campus that Atticus says, Grandma, this is where Daddy lives. And that was just a moment that arrested you. And you talk about it in your book, Camping with Kierkegaard. I want to start there. What was going on in your mind? And even more importantly, in your soul, as you heard your son Atticus say those words. It's such a good place to start because ultimately I do existential philosophy, broadly construed. And existential philosophy is best understood not as an ism, a historical movement. It's an approach to thinking deeply, thinking well, as rooted in our lived praxis. And so this question throws me back onto my lived existence, my lived space. Yeah, my, my mom and dad were here in town visiting been years ago and drove over to Furman. And Atticus, as we drove in, he was, I don't exactly remember how old, but young, no pretense, no irony, not able to be snarky toward his dad the way he is now at 14. And he said, look, grandma, look, grandpa, that's where daddy lives. And it it arrested me then because the way that our kids make sense of reality is largely filtered through our behavior. 
the way that we invite them to make sense of not only the good, but also what counts as the true and the beautiful is narrated by our lived praxis, not just what we say, right? Because in many ways, they aren't yet at the cognitive level where they understand what we're saying. They parrot it, right? They will say things that we said, but not understand the semantic point. But when it comes to practice, they see us and they internalize that as just the way things should be. And somehow here, my son had internalized my university, my place of work as my home, the place where I live. And it knocked me over that day and and has continued to every time I think back on it, because what is it that I was doing that had conveyed to my son that our house right, where his mother and I live with him was somehow of secondary importance. That's not really where I stayed. And of course, he wasn't in school at this time. So he was at home literally 99% of his life. And I wasn't there is, is what his statement's conveying. And yeah, it knocked me over. But here's the sad thing. And I go into this in the book. It didn't change my behavior. What it did was make me feel guilty. I felt ashamed at some level. But I was like, ah, if only he was older, he'd understand I'm working so hard for him. I'm trying to give him a future. I'm trying to make sure that he doesn't have to pay for college. Like everything I'm doing, I'm not a workaholic, which I still don't think is the right term applied to my practice. It was, I was so in love with trying to be excellent, the task at hand because of my love for my wife and son and students and others that he just doesn't understand. He didn't get it, but oh my goodness, how ashamed. And then what I go into in the book is several years later, COVID hits. And when COVID hit, suddenly I am forced to be at home. And the normal was no longer normal. The inertia of the everyday ran into a very big wall that had virus all over it. And it was that experience that finally allowed me to say, man, normal sucks. What I've let be my normal lived praxis is not something that I want to define the rest of my life. And I started asking this question that I'm sure we'll unpack. What is worthy of my finitude? What's worthy of the time I have because I don't have an unlimited amount of it? And suddenly my son was home for virtual school. My wife was home because she couldn't get to the office. I was home teaching online. But what I didn't want to do was spend all day online. I wanted to be in the woods with my son. So that's where we went. And my wife and son and I went camping. We went fishing. I got into mountain biking. And so the book, Came to the Kierkegaard, is not actually about going to the woods, but it's about trying to discover what is it that would define our time if we were purposive about how we spent it. And so in retrospect, my son's comment, that's where daddy lives was a call to me that I failed adequately to respond to until several years later. And now I'm doing the best I can not to live in guilt and shame about what's now past, but to learn I can do it differently and then to live with hopefully some vigor into tomorrow in a way that hopefully is not something that leads my son to say at 16, dad's still there, right? Now I want my son to say, oh, My dad wants me to go mountain biking with him all the time, but he doesn't understand what a loser he is. I want to hang out with my girlfriend. I'll take that trade because it's me saying, man, I am right here for you all the time. 
I'm still getting books written. I'm still grading my papers. I'm still teaching my classes. But the way he perceives my life is fully invested in his and trying to open up to a future that I'm actually proud to have walked toward. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted to welcome back to the show today, Jay Aaron Simmons. He is an internationally recognized scholar. He's a professor of philosophy at Furman University. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a Way of Life. And here's what I really like about that phrase that you just used, living with vigor, because what you're doing in this book, Camping with Kierkegaard, as I read it, was you're inviting the reader at every juncture to stop and take stock and to say, where am I standing and what direction is the momentum of my life pointing? And is that the direction of what I want to become? Because there's one point where you say, life is a battle of inches and seconds, and the decisions that we're making at every single point, that ends up stacking up over time into a becoming. And so you're really inviting the reader to reflect on a kind of intentionality and to not simply be caught up in the, I did this today because I did it yesterday, and I'm going to do it tomorrow because I did it today. Now, as I begin to say this back to you, am I getting one of the main points of your book, or have I said it in the wrong way, and would you say it in a different way? No, to, to that, I would say in all of my Pentecostal vigor, amen, preach it, brother. So that's exactly right. The Things that I would want readers coming to this book to know is I tried to write it in a way that never was pejorative or patronizing. So I do not think that I dumb it down, as it were. But I tried to write it in a way that was inviting and personal enough that they never felt like that they were being left behind, right? And Ultimately, this is what good hikes should be, right? Is we want to hike with people that push us to go a little bit steeper climb. You know, we want to ride bikes with people that want us to, you know, we, we can push a little bit harder, go off a little bit bigger drop. We want to go camping with folks who, hey, let's go a little bit further into the woods. But if they do it so fast or so quick, then we're just by ourselves on a trail and we're like, this is stupid. I don't even want to be here. So, Finding a way to invite the reader in, I started thinking, what are the big questions of philosophy? And how would we put all those big questions into one or two phrases? And the two that I landed on were the idea that we must ask every day, every minute, what is worthy of my finitude? Finitude just being that we are vulnerable and we are relational. So we don't have an infinite amount of time. Our bodies break down and the, the way we spend our time impacts others, right? And so that vulnerability and relationality are nested in what's worthy of my finitude. And then the other phrase is what you just said, you are who you're becoming. So if you don't like the habits that you are forming now, you definitely aren't going to like the way those habits become even more pronounced over a long period of time, right? Anybody who's uh, partnered with someone for a long time can say like those little things that kind of rubbed you the wrong way a little bit become amplified over decades. <laughs> they don't go away, they get, they get louder. And part of 
what it means to live with someone, to be invested in someone, is to find those things that become complicated and amplified to be part of what it looks like to be invested in them is navigating those complexities, right? And I think life is that way. And so what I did in this book is try to invite people to go on a metaphorical journey with me to the mountains and in doing so, hopefully make literal in their life the consequence of being purposive. Anne Lamont, someone I read and, and cite often, has this line where she says, we must be where our feet are. And that doesn't mean, you know, be still, don't move forward, don't have direction. What she's saying is, well, what direction is it that you're heading in? And is that a direction you think is a good direction? Are you okay with where you're going, right? Imagine we're in an Uber and we say, hey, take me to the whatever, Empire State Building. And the Uber gets on the interstate, like heading to Toledo. You don't say, wherever. No, you're going the wrong way. And so too many of us in our life find ourselves locked in a particular kind of inertia that doesn't let direction be a question. It ends up just being a given. Well, that's where we're going. That's just what it looks like. That's just the real world. And we have all these phrases to distract ourselves from the agency that we have suspended in relationship to direction. And what I try to do, and this is my definition of faith, it's not a religious idea, though religious readers can certainly develop it in that way if they would like. It's an idea that we have to embrace risk as an existential requirement. And all I mean by risk is not literally jumping off rocks and stuff like I do mountain biking. Risk is simply when you make choices, because you're finite, you necessarily close down other options could have been actualized for you, right? When you got married to Kira, you necessarily said, sorry, Susie and Jill, right? Like they were no longer options. Now you may, decisions real, you could leave Kira if you wanted to and go meet Jill. But the point is that would come also at a really high cost internal to the commitment that you have made. So risk is not a complicated idea. It's just the fact that because we're limited, decisions are always limiting. But they're not just limiting. They are also the requirement for opening direction. So when I risk myself in a direction, whether it be getting married to my wife, Vanessa, whether it be taking a day off work to go watch my son's band performance, whether it be moving my parents here to where I live in Greenville, South Carolina, like, all of these things that I do, there are risks because there are other things I could have done. And I said, but this is worth it because this direction of my life is one that I'm willing to actualize. And that's faith for me. So the point is we must become faithful, not do the same thing as everybody else, but do what you think is worth doing. And when we do that, we start realizing it's not just about checking boxes, right? How many of us feel overwhelmed and busy and exhausted? But hey, if I can just make partner, if I can just get a Tesla, if I can just get the iPhone 15 Pro, then I'll be good. And the problem is you won't be. You'll just have a fancy car and a good phone, right? And then the problem is you'll wash your car every day for three months. And then you'll not even care if people spill Wendy's Frosties inside your car because it won't actually change you. It won't make you someone else. 
It'll just be you looking for meaning, but not looking for a car. And so what would it be like if we recognize, let's go try to accomplish what we want to accomplish, check boxes, be successful, but let's do this as logistics. Let's do that as strategic things. But what grounds us is that to which we are faithful. And in that gesture, I'm drawing here on David Foster Wallace, who ultimately says everybody worships something. What matters is the object of our worship. And he says, be real careful because a bunch of things will eat you alive. And so I'm trying to unpack why would we rather go to the mountains and spend time with our kids instead of just making partner? Again, go make partner. But if it comes at the cost of your family, man, maybe it ate you alive. Right. If it's the case that your kid tells you it, I think he was eight. We were walking down the street and he says, Dad, I don't want to be a philosopher because they don't spend time with their kids. My son said this. And when he said, I realized, wow, it has eaten me alive. And it was never a vicious decision. It was not really a decision. I found myself just swept up in the inertia of a success driven mindset. Rather than saying, hey, I can get a PhD and be a professor and do the best I can in all these spaces, but not let it define what matters to me most deeply. And if we can avoid that success mindset, we're likely to be more successful, right? That's the trick with faithfulness. If we are committed to faithfulness, success is actually likely to occur more often. Just like for my students, they're likely to do better on their exam when they stop being so stressed about their grades. So I'm not saying, hey, blow off studying for the test. I'm saying, but look, recognize if you fail the test, that sucks and there's consequences, but it does not degrade your personhood, right? It doesn't actually mean you're not worth something. And if they can free themselves of that weight, they're actually probably gonna study more effectively because they're able to do this as a logistical thing to do, not as a necessity for selfhood. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with J. Aaron Simmons. He's a professor of philosophy at Furman University, a fisherman, a mountain biker, a husband, and a father. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a Way of Life. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show J. Aaron Simmons. He is a philosopher, a fisherman, a mountain biker, a husband, and a father, an award-winning teacher, and an internationally recognized scholar. Today we're talking about his recent book, Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a way of life. Well, we've 
begun to gesture in that direction, but one thing that I want listeners to really get from this conversation is that your book, Camping with Kierkegaard, is tactile. It's not some head-in-the-clouds approach to woolly, bearded philosophers, but rather it really does take you out onto the mountain trails. It takes you into the rivers. It takes you fishing and biking and uses that as a way to energize reflection and to energize companionship and to energize getting yourself responsible and actual. And I love all of these pieces that you're bringing out in this tactile sense. You're using all of these moments that happen in the wilderness as a way of teaching the life of reflection towards meaning. And to me, it, it was just, it was a sublime sort of book in that way, because you're able to bring in philosophers that I've known for a long time, and even some that I haven't heard of. You reference a philosopher like Chrétien. But all of these are it's not a book about trying to get all of their thoughts right. It's a book about trying to look at the ways in which their thoughts can help us here in our everydayness. Now, again, I'm paraphrasing a lot. And as I'm saying all this, I want to make sure that I've got it right. But can you talk to us about why you felt after all the books, you've written more than a dozen books on philosophy, why you now wanted to write a book about fishing and mountain biking? Help us understand that. Yeah, well, I love, love, love the word tactile. I don't think I used that word in the book, but I should have because I think that's right. I wrote this book to try to make philosophy tactile. I love that. There's a, some swag I'm sure that you and I can now collaborate on with make philosophy tactile, go camping with Kierkegaard and listen to things not seen. So why did I do this? I did it because of two reasons, actually. One, again, covid was certainly not the cause, but it was the impetus for this book because it, it required me to make a choice about whether I would choose to change my action, my life, and my behavior or not. Because if, I was, if, a, if a global pandemic wasn't going to be enough, what, what possibly could have been? My son's comments about me not being available and living at my office those weren't enough, apparently. My wife telling me years and years, Aaron, you keep saying, if only you can get this next paper written, if only you can get that book done, if only you can get tenure, then things will change. You'll go on vacation. You'll spend more time. And eventually she was like, Aaron, I don't believe you anymore because you've said this for 30 years. I've known you since you were 15. Like you, you don't change in this. Right? And all of that was seeded in the background, but then literally our economic system, our daily life, the way we got food, all of it broke down. And it created for me the necessity of a choice that I had too long delayed. And I hope that the rest of my life will prove that I chose wisely. And I chose to go fishing. I chose to go camping. I chose to be with my family and still write books, still be a professor, still teach my classes. Again, I don't want anybody to think that this is some sort of let's just abandon the office and head to the hills kind of suggestion. It's instead an invitation to be intentional about whatever it is we do because we've only got one chance to figure out what to do. It's, it's simply called life. Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher that I mentioned in the title of the book, basically says, that life is the moment of decision. 
<laughs> we think of life as having big moments of decision when we go to college or what we're going to major in and first, what house will we buy and who will we marry or whatever. Kierkegaard says, no, life is the moment of decision because every single instant is deciding whether or not life is worth living. It's deciding how am I going to go forward? It's deciding what will I worship? It's deciding who will I become? And sure, we don't take that up reflectively and consciously at every instant because sometimes we're teaching a class or grading papers or shopping at whatever store or just trying to get dinner made. It's not trying to ignore the realities of our embodied embeddedness. It's trying to take that seriously and say, but if we just allow that to overwhelm us, we then have acquiesced to something being the real world that was absolutely contingent on our saying yes to it. And so one of the big moves, and I'll say this now because I want to make sure we don't miss it, is I think the one critique that I've heard about the book that I think is unfair but entirely sensible is easy for you to say that we should stop working so hard, run to the mountains, spend time with our family. You've got a tenured full professorship. You make enough money not to worry about where food's coming from this afternoon. You have health care, right? And I, I, again, I think it's unfair because not, it's not wrong. It's just unfair because what I'm trying to do in the book is invite a vision of why it matters to be critical of structures of historical privilege, right? Why, why we should think things like whiteness and maleness and heteronormativity and all these things are so problematic as social phenomena is because there's a world we could make real where those things no longer tear out who gets access to healthcare and food and leisure time. And so what I'm trying to envision is this existential philosophical notion where we are all adequately possessed of the agency that no one can strip away from us. And the problem is we have social structures that have convinced far too many people they don't have agency. And then we've got too many people that basically ignore those social structures and say, hey, you've got agency, just make something different. And you're like, how do I do that when I'm working three jobs at minimum wage to just pay a bill and the rent's being raised and my kids can't afford shoes? And you're telling me just use my agency? So what I'm trying to do is envision an existential possibility that hopefully would motivate us to become um, reasonably committed to the kind of justice required to make this a vision for everyone. So I want to make sure that people understand I'm not ignoring that and just saying run to the hills. I'm instead trying to say, hey, we all find ourselves in the human condition. And unfortunately, we've made the human condition a lot easier for some and a lot harder for others. And that's what I'm trying to parse out in an existential way. Now, I want to play with this for just a moment. And so we we could look at this trajectory we've been talking about and figuring out in this moment what you are becoming and whether or not it's worthy of your finitude. We could point that arrow in, I think, two directions. One, Martin Heidegger would say, look towards your death and your death gives you your authenticity. And so if you look at your life from the perspective of your deathbed, what kind of choices would you want to have made at that point? So that's one way of organizing this. But then Hannah Arendt, who you also mentioned in your book, Camping with Kierkegaard, turns that arrow around and says, don't look at mortality, but instead look at natality, look at birth. And Arendt reads this into every moment gives us the possibility of birthing something new in the world. 
So if I present you with those two options along the line that we're talking about, are, are we focused on our death and kind of living a, a life towards a good death, or are we focused on our birth and making the most of the possibilities that are there in our birth? Which of those two ends of the arrow draw you more in this thinking, yeah. or are you trying to balance between them in some way? Yeah, it's a great question. So the last chapter of the book, full chapter, is reflecting on aging and death. It's called The Other Side of the Mountain, playing on being over the hill. And the, it, it's weird. That was the only chapter in the entire book I knew I had to write. And I was really nervous about writing because I so did not want to write it in a way that then invited readers to think, hey, this is just some sort of stoic focus on your death, prepare for death, we're gonna die. When you hug your wife, you're hugging a mortal. So when she passes away, do not be distraught. Like all these approaches that almost make loss and grief not real at some level. And I wanted loss and grief to be, again, tactile, to be palpable, but not in a way that, again, then sucked us into depression. This is not a book about loss. It's a book about the possibility of plenitude. But I don't think that there's the possibility of plenitude without the recognition that risk remains. And I think the best way to understand how risk functions in our lives is to take seriously that being toward death is not a depressive awareness of the fact that, hey, you're going to die, so eat, drink, and be merry. It's instead an existential reminder that your birth makes a difference. Right, that because we are beings towards death, how we choose to live literally can change the world that others who are born inherit. So I don't know if I'd say balance between the two. I, I guess I'd probably land closer to that than any sort of a hard line on one or the other. But where I'm certainly coming down existentially is this is a book about forward momentum. And in that sense, it's about natality. It's a book about taking seriously that no matter your circumstances, no matter your situation, it is possible to be okay, right? Now, again, that does not mean we don't grieve. Doesn't mean we're not still fighting for justice in a world that is all too abusive and full of suffering. It doesn't mean that there are days where we are overwhelmed and we are not the car, we're the bug smashed on the windshield, right? All of that can still be in play. And to deny that is, you know, like uh, Wesley says in Princess Bride, you know, life's not fair, your highness, anyone who says differently selling something, right? This is not a book that's trying to float above the muck of human existence. It's trying to say, in the midst of the muck, laughter is possible somehow. And we see this when we read, you know, Man's Search for Meeting. In the, the middle of the worst horrors of humankind, we see these jokes being told that are uproariously funny in the midst of the pandemic with suffering on a scale, again, that's hard to imagine for those of us who have inherited certain types of economic privilege and social lottery winnings. It, it, it was suddenly a situation where people were leaning out of their windows in Italy, banging pots and pans and singing with each other to remind each other, hey, you're not alone. And those moments, right, in the, when things are not okay, you still can be. That's the sort of 
anchor that I'm trying to tether us to. I want to stick with this idea you just introduced of forward momentum. And you pick that up philosophically in the book here, Camping with Kierkegaard. You do it in a way that, again, pulls us into mountain biking. There's this phrase that you introduce to this to the readers, just send it. And that's a way of keeping your forward momentum. And I wonder if you could unpack that for us and explain how this idea of just send it in mountain biking ties into what you're saying about a kind of intentional forward momentum in life. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So yeah, I try my best to find, again, phrases and slogans, even things that can go on stickers and, and hats. Not because I'm looking to like you merch all this stuff, but instead because we live in a society where an Instagram reel is about all the attention span that we've allowed ourselves to cultivate. And so this phrase that mountain bikers use a lot, just send it. <laughs> it, it does a bunch of things. I've got a chapter where I talk about ethics and, and just send it becomes the kind of summary of these ethical commitments to humility, hospitality, and gratitude. But just send it means two things. On the one hand, it's a statement of encouragement to someone who is hesitant in the face of obstacles. And so you, you say to someone, just send it when you're getting ready, you're looking, let's say, over a big drop or a rock slab roll, or there's a jump or all these things that you would navigate, these obstacles on the mountain biking trail. But of course, I'm really talking about obstacles in life, right? When there's job loss and despair and temptations to anxiety and you know frustrations about not things working out the way we had hoped. And what we say to each other on the mountain biking trail is, first, let's walk up, let's session the feature. So again, don't stop being strategic. This is not foolhardy nonsense. It's, hey, brashness is a failure of thought, but intentional uh, assumption of risk is actually what life requires. And so we go up, we'll walk the feature. What are the options for the line? How can we get down it? Is this something I'm going to pull? Is it something I need to push? Is it something that I need to come in fast or I need to slow down? All of these are things that we're running through our head because it turns out we're faced with alternatives. Do I quit this job that I'm miserable at? Do I look for other jobs? Maybe I simply go talk to HR about facing this challenge in different ways. Hey, maybe it's a person issue, not a position. So we do the same thing in life. We session the feature. And then we've got to make a choice. Am I going to send it or not? And we can always walk away, right? And believe me, there are some trails here in Pisgah National Forest where I ride. There's a 20-foot gap jump. Man, no. No, because I like my son. I like not being in wheelchairs. This is not a thing I'm going to send because the risk so far exceeds the reward that I'm looking to get out of mountain biking that day. As we say to each other, I ride with a bunch of dudes that were all in our 40s. And so we'll say to each other, our goal is to go to the bar afterwards, not to go to the ER, right? We want to go get lunch. We don't want to go get stitches. And so you can say, I'm not going to send this one. And that's a perfectly legitimate choice. But if you decide to run this feature, if you're going to roll this one, man, you got to freaking send. So it's like, all right, just send this means stop hesitating, 
you know the right line. You also know you might miss it and it goes bad. But the only way to make this as safe as possible is to freaking get on the pedals, drop the goggles, make sure the face mask and body armor are strapped up and then freaking send it. Just send it. So just send it is not foolhardy nonsense. It's a intentional reflective awareness of real options. And then when I choose an option, give it all you've got. But the other layer at which it works, and this is important, I think, is just send it is a reminder that when we've done all we can do, there's a whole bunch that lies beyond our control. So just send it names our control to make the decision and go full bore, right? Run that thing. It also names the fact that, hey, if you send this one, like, dude, that rock could slip. <laughs> like, the, the tire could blow. A buddy of mine was doing this gnarly jump. It was, it was called a step up. So he was jumping and he was going over this gap and then landing up on a rock about six foot higher than where he took off. And the problem is when you compress into your bike, which basically you go down force to get all of your suspension to throw you up when it comes back off of that compression. His shock, so the thing that keeps his bike moving up and down, exploded. And so he compresses and then lifts to take off of the jump. His shock explodes. So now he has no lift coming back at him. And he goes smashing into the rock. Thankfully, was not injured devastatingly. He cracked some ribs, we think. But you know, he was out the next day. But he's okay back on the bike. But the point is... It wasn't in his control. It wasn't a thing that he, we had done the bike check. We had made sure it was all safe. We had made sure it was properly inflated. Sometimes there's just failure, right? And sometimes it's not your fault. It just happens. So being able to just send it is to remind, hey, give it all you got, but be humble enough to recognize that all you got does not guarantee results. And that's why... We can't be defined by success. The goal is to get up on that step up, right? Continue on the trail. Of course it is, but not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to ride that feature with all I've got and make the best choices I can about what features to ride. And if I'm doing that, ultimately, the point of mountain biking is to keep riding. The point of fishing is to keep fishing. The point of living is to live well. It's not to get the Tesla and the promotion and the trophy partner and then walk away. Because if that's the goal, right, we'd all become George Costanza. Remember the scene in Seinfeld where George Costanza like leaves his office part, his office meeting because he says something, they all start laughing. He's like, I'm out because if I say anything else, I'm going to mess it up. Imagine if I had a fathering win on a Tuesday and said, I'm done. I'm leaving my family on Wednesday so I don't mess it up tomorrow. I'm not a good father. Because it's not about checking boxes. It's about being invested in that relationship. And I want to suggest to everybody, we can learn from mountain bikers about how to live, whether or not we ever step foot on a bike or step foot off of the pavement. We should learn just to send it in life because awareness and humility are going to be required in order not to F this stuff up all the time. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with J. Aaron Simmons. He is a philosopher, a fisherman, a mountain biker, a husband, and a father. He's also an award-winning teacher and an internationally recognized scholar. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a Way of Life. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show Professor J. Aaron Simmons. He's a philosopher, fisherman, mountain biker, husband, and father. He's also an award-winning teacher and an internationally recognized scholar. Today we're talking about his recent book, Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a Way of Life. There's a moment in your book, Camping with Kierkegaard, that speaks to what we were talking about in the last segment. In the last segment, you talked about your riding partner who had figured out everything with the bike was ready to try and make that jump to the wall a little higher than the trail. And at the last moment, as the compression happens, the shock absorbers pop and he doesn't have the lift and he goes slamming into the wall. You talk about another moment when you're riding with a partner and there's a, a, a mishap and he ends up going end over end over a rock precipice and you finally get to the edge to see where he's gone and he's managed to miss the boulders and not smash. He's managed to miss the down trees and not impale himself. And he's landed in a, a pile of mud. And I forget whether it's there or somewhere else, but you remark that somebody is saying at that moment, the, the person that's sitting in the midst of a wreck saying, and this is why we do this. And, I, and you begin to unpack that moment of this is why we do this. Even in a moment of failure, this is why we do this. Help me and my listeners understand what those moments are like when you've just basically landed on your butt. It hasn't gone the way that you wanted, and yet there is this impetus to say, and this is the moment that we were waiting for. Unpack that for us. Yeah, and, and I've, I've got to be clear here, lest anyone think that I'm an adrenaline junkie, which I really am not. As my wife would say, anytime we approach a very big bridge and I pull the car over so she can drive over it because I'm incapable of doing so. The idea is we do this because life has to show at the seams, as one of my early professors used to say. It, it's like a coat where you turn the coat inside out and you pull at the seams. You, you want it to show where the seams are because it's got to have enough give not to just rip. But at the same time, if the seams just immediately let go, if it's, they're not showing, they just rip, then it turns out the coat doesn't work. So what does it mean to live such that life lets the seams show? And for me, it's just palpable. When you're on a mountain bike or you're in a river, and I remember once, for example, in a river, my dad was fishing. He slips, goes down, screaming's too grand, but he's yelling, Whoa! you know, and I, of course, go running toward him because if you're in waders and they fill up with water, you can be in a big mess because you become immediately heavier <laughs> than, than you need to be. 
And I go running over and he's just floundering and floundering in the water. And, but it looks weird. I was like, what? But he's not sinking. What the heck? And so I'm like, I was like, dad, stop moving. So he stops moving. And it turns out his belly is on a boulder. So he's just remaining above the water with his belly on the boulder. But because he was floundering so much, he thought he was under the water and sinking. But he was fine. And so it's like, get stand up, man. You're good. You're not actually even underwater. And the same is true when it comes to mountain biking. When that tire slips and you're like, and you're aware now of, man, this is by inches could have gone bad. Same's true with my dad. It could have been the case that he slipped, went underwater, his waders filled up, he didn't have a knife with him, he goes to the bottoms, unable to get his foot out. Like, it could go bad, and yet it didn't. And sometimes it does, though, right? So I took a jump a couple years ago on the bike, landed wrong, went flying over the bars, tore my AC joint, broke a rib. My buddy the other day was out riding. And his pedal, the actual composite material, the pedal snapped in half. And so the axle or the spindle where the pedal is held and spins around got his cast and just basically flayed his cast. It didn't come off, but it was so deep that he, he ended up at the, the ER. Another buddy of mine recently, we were out riding. He went, took a, a line. He took too much risk in my opinion, but he took a line that wasn't a real line. And he was like, oh, this will be cool. But then we're spitting him out back on the trail. It was too quick to make the turn. He went flying, slid down on his face about 20 feet. And even though he had a full face mask on, the one spot that wasn't covered right on his upper lip, you know, he had to go to the ER and get his lip glued back together. So it is the case that things happen. And so again, let's pull out of our examples on the trail. It, it, none of us live life without losing people we love. None of us live life without disappointment being so palpable that sometimes it's hard to know how to put a foot in front of the other. Sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where it seems like we've only got two options and both of them suck. So that reality is in fact something that we do not want to narrate as good. Right. So I am not, this is what we call as philosophers a theodicy. We don't want to say, oh, this is actually a moment in the articulation of the good. No, this just is crap. And trauma is real. And, and thankfully, there are good therapists. But it's the case that if it were not for the possibility of such moments, if we lived again, like a Seinfeld episode in the bubble, right? We're the bubble boy in our life. Well, it turns out that we actually never get to experience what it looks like to have the tire slip and then giggle with our friends about the fact that, boy, that was freaking sketchy, but we're good, right? And my hope is that we live for this, we ride for this, we do this, not for the trauma, not for the suffering, not for the injury, not to be flippant about harm, not to justify it and make it good when it's not, but to try to find ways to fist bump each other before we drop in and then to fist bump the bottom of the trail. And again, think about this as a metaphor for life. When things go sideways, 
it turns out that in that sideways momentum, it's not that, oh, sideways is good. No, sideways is wrong. That's not where we want to be. And if we go sideways too far, it might lead to serious problems. But sideways is always just around the corner in life. And so what we've got to do is own that. And that's the thing when I say this is why we live for this. It's we live for the awareness that just around the corner, it might go bad, but freaking send it, right? Live on purpose. Don't not have kids because you don't want to risk losing a child. Don't not get married because you don't want to eventually experience the loss of a partner. Don't not take that risk because it might go bad. At some point, recognize that it's in light of those realities that we then say, hell yes, right? And that does not mean foolhardy, does not mean brash, doesn't mean we don't session stuff. Again, I'm not riding 50-foot Red Bull drops. Do not get me wrong. (laughs) But, and this is a sticker I had made, to sell when I, I give talks and stuff about the book. It's a sticker that just has a double black diamond logo. Double black diamond is the hardest trails for skiing, mountain biking, whatever. And on the double black diamond signs, it says experts only is, is what they say at the bottom. Well, it turns out in life, there are no beginner bunny trails, right? There are no green trails. They're all double black diamond. And so what I did was took the double black diamond logo and underneath just put risk plus direction. So instead of thinking, oh, I'm not an expert, I can't do that. It's, are you faithful? Freaking send it, right? And that space, we're all on double black diamond trails in life. And this is what we live for, that life matters, that beauty is possible, that relationships are significant, even if they are finite. So what is worthy of your finitude? We're all answering that question and hopefully most of us get the opportunity to ask it on purpose. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with J. Aaron Simmons. He's a philosopher, a fisherman, a mountain biker, a husband, and a father. Today we're talking about his recent book, Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a Way of Life. So one of my favorite chapters in your book, Camping with Kierkegaard, comes towards the end. And I thought of it because you mentioned in an earlier segment kind of the way that your students now are interfacing with a lot of things through TikTok-length bursts. And you take this idea of the kind of TikTok-length, the short form that the kids love these days, And then you read that back through the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and in particular, the later Nietzsche. And as we're coming to the end of our conversation, I'd love for you to just play with that for a moment and let my listeners experience what you're doing in that chapter where you're comparing TikTok and Nietzsche. Yeah, so what's so interesting about that chapter is it did not start out intentionally. What I did in that chapter was I had, so I wrote this entire book with very few exceptions. There's a few little passages and and parts that I wrote back in the the cities and towns. But almost all this book was written literally on top of mountains in North and South Carolina. And I, I found myself in those spaces continuing to have these thoughts and ideas that would happen. So what I would do is literally go mountain biking in the morning or trout fishing or be out camping or whatever. 
And then I would go back to the cabin that night or back to the campsite and then sit down with my computer and write. And what I found were these like phrases or sentences even, or sometimes it was an idea, but not worked out. It was like a paragraph that I hadn't thought through yet. And then I would come back to the cabin and just put them down. The idea being, oh, I'll come back to these eventually and work them out into parts of a a chapter. Like this will eventually find its way. It's just notes to myself. Oh, there's an example I should use at some point. Yeah, that's a kind of neat turn of phrase. I should bring that back in. And then something occurred to me, two things actually. One was, oh shoot, somehow I found myself with enough of these little ideas and nuggets and sentences that it was like a chapter all its own. But the thing that like let me keep it as a chapter was this conversation between John Lennon and Paul McCartney years ago. And I don't know where I saw this on some documentary or an interview with Paul McCartney or something, where they were talking about one of the lines in Hey Jude. And I think it's the line about something sitting on his shoulder, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a line that Paul, if I remember right, wrote as a placeholder. It was like, I, I need that many syllables and, and as he's playing the song the first time for John and he's getting that line, he says, I'll come back and fix that. And he keeps playing and they get done. And John says, no, that's the best line in the song. And this idea that what we had as placeholders or impetus to something we'll come back and fix later might actually be where wisdom happens was something that gave me enough courage, I don't know, to let this chapter stand on its own. Um, but I grabbed my book to just read a couple of these because people might be interested in what does this mean? Here's a few. Leaves give our ears the ability to hear the wind, but they prevent our eyes from seeing very far. Another is I like dogwood trees because they have a tendency to grow in the most unexpected places. In the early spring, they make their presence known when everything else is still hiding. So the, again, these ideas, they, they weren't like fully fleshed out ideas that I wanted to present. It was the fact that I literally had gotten up that morning and it was in the winter, but the dogwoods had just started popping. So it was like right at the beginning of spring. And yet you couldn't actually see them if the leaves were up. It's because they were a little bit on the early side that it was a reminder oh, something's coming. And it was that thought that just snapped that then led to that sentence that I thought, ooh, maybe I'll do part of a chapter where I think through something like new beginnings and I'll use this idea. But I never got back to it. I instead decided, no, this this works on its own. And sometimes we've got to realize that a poem, which I am not a poet, but maybe a poem can convey more than a treatise. And something else I use in the book throughout are song lyrics, because I think in terms of music. And it'll date myself because most of the song lyrics I talk about are like heavy metal and political hip hop from the 90s. But I do that because I think sometimes a song lyric can do more than chapters upon chapters of philosophy. And I'll give two examples. One which I was going to use as an epigraph for the book, but I was worried that I would end up having to pay a bunch of money and decided that I got too scared and didn't and just talked about it in the book. Because apparently epigraphs are not covered by fair use policy. 
But this line by one of my favorite singer-songwriters named Donovan Woods, he has a song called Next Year. And in the song, he tells a story about his son saying, I can't wait till next year. When's next year, dad? And he's like, why do you care about next year? What do you mean? And he said, because you said next year we'll go fishing. Next year we're going to play ball. Next year we're going to... And it's that logic of, if I can just get through this, then we'll get there. Then we'll do it. I'll do it once I... And Donovan Woods has this chorus where he basically comes down and says, there ain't no next year. It's only ever this year. It's only ever today. And so that idea, there ain't no next year, does in one phrase what I took, what, 200 pages to try to say? And the other is to switch genres rather substantially. There's a band called Lamb of God that I'm a fan of, a metal band. And they have a song called Memento Mori, which of course is taken from stoic philosophy. Remember that you are mortal, which is ultimately what's worthy of your finitude. You're going to die, so make the most of today. But they have a song called Memento Mori where they, first lines are, wake up. And I started thinking like, man, that's it. What does it mean to wake up? It doesn't just mean to roll out of bed and stumble through life. Wake up means to get out of bed on purpose because there's something to do. There's a reason to be. And so wake up, there ain't no next year, <laughs> is effectively doing what that little chapter of aphorisms that I dedicate to Nietzsche who wrote in that style. And he wrote his aphorisms literally while hiking the Alps. So I thought that was also a kind of nice way to show some symmetry that this isn't something new. It's something that philosophers have done for a while. And ultimately, there's a lot of names mentioned in the book. I never try to name drop to show that I know people. It's instead meant to be what we in uh, my church background would call a cloud of witnesses. And so what I try to do is have all of these different people from Hannah Arendt to Simone de Beauvoir to Donovan Woods to Kendrick Lamar to Nietzsche, all of them, Norm from Cheers, Doc Holliday from Tombstone, they're all in this cloud of witnesses walking and talking with us. And hopefully when people read this, they do not feel like I'm patronizing and dumbing down, but they also never feel like that I'm running too fast ahead of them and they can't catch up. I hope it is genuinely an invitation for them to walk, hike, dance, ride with me. And maybe let's have a conversation that's worthwhile on the way. Well, Aaron Simmons, every time I get a chance to talk to you, I learn from you and I just enjoy it so much. And reading this book, and I've read a lot of your books, this was the most conversational of your books that I've ever encountered. It was joyous to walk through these ideas with you, to be on these pages with you, just as it's been joyous to have this conversation with you. Thank you for all of the time and thought that you put into writing Camping with Kierkegaard. Thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners. Well, David, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you do, and it matters. And I really think that for 10 years, you've been inviting people to do exactly what this book is yet one more call to try to get them to understand. You are finite, so make it matter. And when we think about things that matter, when we think about things that maybe aren't seen in our ordinary course of life, life might be just a little bit spicier, a little bit more tasty. And at the end of the day, it might leave us with a little bit less indigestion. And somehow, if we can pull that off, spicy food with no indigestion, that might be a worth, uh, worthwhile task indeed. 
So it's been worthy of my finitude to talk to you. I hope it has been the same for you and all your listeners. If they want to learn more about me, again, drop over to jarensimmons.com. They can find out all kinds of stuff. I've got lots of links and make sure to get subscribed to my newsletter there. I do a monthly newsletter with philosophy, music, all kinds of different recommendations for how we can make philosophy a constant companion wherever we find ourselves. So thank you so much, my friend. You're welcome, and thank you again. We've been speaking today with J. Aaron Simmons. He's a philosopher, a fisherman, a mountain biker, a husband, and a father. He's also an award-winning teacher and an internationally recognized scholar. We've been talking today about his recent book, Camping with Kierkegaard, Faithfulness as a Way of Life. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.